Welcome to Unwanted Guests, the podcast that teaches you about insects and other pests that may join you in and around your home. It's brought to you by Texas A&M AgriLife Extension and the Texas A&M Department of Entomology. We're your hosts, Wizzy Brown, Bryant McDowell, Molly Keck, Robert Puckett, and Janet Hurley. All right, welcome back to the Unwanted Guests podcast. Uh, this week, we are going to be discussing um, do-it-yourself pest control and pesticide safety. So uh, talking about when chemicals uh, and chemical control is actually necessary in your household and then how to uh, limit your uh, exposure to pesticides, um, whether that be you know your personal exposure, your pets, your kids, um, all of those topics. So let's talk about choosing a product because isn't that what we all get phone calls about, right? Well, I think there are various things that go into choosing a product. When I talk to people, one, I tell them that they need to read the pesticide label and make sure that the location of where they are treating is on the label. I think that that is probably one of the most important things because not everything is formulated to be used indoors or on the other high outdoors or on certain types of plants or surfaces. So you need to make sure that the location is on the label. And then I think that they also need to look at um, the formulation you know, are you going to have to mix something? Are you comfortable with doing that? Do you want something that is ready to use? And then you also, to go along with that, need to take into account application equipment. Do you have what is required to apply that pesticide in a proper and safe manner already? Or is that going to be an additional purchase that you need to make? And before you even go there, when do you need to use it? So audience, if you live in Texas or in the South, our pest pressures are somewhat different than someone who lives up North. But just because there are, there are insects outdoors doesn't necessarily mean I need to constantly make an application. So if you decide if, do I want to, to utilize a, a company and have them come or do I want to do it myself? In other words, the do-it-yourself method that I'm gonna protect my own property. Granted, when you're working with a pest control company, they generally have you on a schedule and they come out and they assess what's going on. However, if you're doing it yourself, and I'm thinking of every one of us who are on this podcast, we've all got the experience, but do we all have the time and do we all have everything we need to do to actually do things around our house? Because again, I'm up, Bryant and I are up in North Texas, up in the Dallas area, Wizzy's down in Austin, Molly's over in San Antonio, and Robert's in College Station. So I've just mentioned three to four different types of um, environmental zones 
and our pest pressures are all different. So when we're talking about what are we going to do and how are we going to treat it, we talk about those thresholds. Have we met that before? And so when we have been giving our talks about either store product packs or ants or um, cockroaches, we talk about, well, what triggers that response? And then what will we do? So for instance, and I'll, I'm not even gonna pick a name, I'm just gonna toss cockroaches out there. It's been raining, it's been wet, and I've got these huge cockroaches in my house. What should I do, team? Should I be like freaking out and putting out bug bombs or what should I be doing? Bug bombs are useless. Yeah, don't don't use bug bombs, especially for cockroaches. Yeah, I, I understand your, your point, Janet. There, there are some insects that become incidental pests in, within structures. Um, that don't necessarily rise to the um, level of concern that someone needs to apply an insecticide. On the other hand, lots of folks have zero tolerance for insects and other arthropods, you know, in their homes. So you're right. One of the first first things that you know I often recommend people do is let's let's determine exactly what species you're dealing with, and then after we do that, we can share some information and say, hey, look, you know, these guys are seasonal in terms of their adult activity. They happen to show up in your house right now. They likely won't be there two weeks from now. So applying insecticide is not necessary. On the other hand, if you, you know, if you're somebody who finds a, uh, uh, an adult or bed bug nymph in their house, um, yeah, that, that's a problem that's not gonna go away without um, somebody intervening. And so, yeah, I think the big, big thing is, you know, let's let's figure out what insect pests folks are dealing with and let's make some educated decisions on whether or not um, this rises to the level of needing to apply an insecticide. Yeah, so more on identification, too, even within, you know, saying cockroaches or saying ants, even in those groups, determining what species you have is also going to help you uh, make a choice on on what type of pesticide, insecticide, whatever that, that you're going to be using. Well, and I'll just go ahead because we, we, we are so good at this, um, was at mom's and I have been fighting, um, smoky brown cockroaches, hmm. but they are in, um, an area where it's very, very moist underneath their house. Okay. So there's a lot of moisture and it was all attributed to the, there was a hole underneath the kitchen sink. But did I need to go in and bug bomb? No, but I did use, um, so for our listeners, there is um, a term I'm gonna throw out there just, and, and bear with me folks. It's called an insect growth regulator, which is considered a hormone mimic in the world of insecticides, but what it is, and this is again for y'all's lay people, it's birth control for bugs. Using an insect growth regulator, especially on a cockroach, what it does is when we are using it either in um, the formula, which I've been using is uh, 
it's the Gentrol packs and they're inside a, a little disc and it, it actually emits this growth regulator. But what it does is it allows the insects to take it in. And I'm not sure if I'm going to get this right, y'all, but they take it in and then um, what it does is it prevents the juveniles from becoming adults disrupts their molting pattern, therefore they cannot reproduce. I know that sounds like a lot, but but at the same time, for our listeners, that product, that insect growth regulator does not harm anything else. No dogs, no cats, no humans, pretty much nothing else. It is designed for that specific type of it's designed for roaches and for a specific environment which goes to our doing it at a localized targeted area versus broad spectrum spraying the whole whole house so here's my other favorite one what about doing perimeter treatments and we've all seen this you can either see the ad that takes you to the big box store and you buy the, what is it, a gallon jug of stuff, the blank blank yard killer or bug killer, or we've all, I've also seen it on social media. Oh, you can get this stuff and do it yourself, buy it online. And again, you're doing some type of perimeter spray. So I'm curious, other than Bryant, who lives in an apartment, so he gets a walk, of my other three folks, anybody do perimeter spraying around their house, spring and fall? I don't, only because I don't, I I am a kind of... Um... I don't know. I'm, I am a little bit more okay with <laughs> seeing a bug or two inside the house. I'm also knowledgeable to know which ones are the ones that I really should be concerned about and which ones I shouldn't. So I kind of like to do IPM practices and, and use exclusion instead, but I, I will not spray or treat unless there's a reason to do it. So I'm not one that does like a quarterly thing or a, you know, every six month thing. Um, but I'm, you know, we're a different crowd than the average homeowner, I think. And even for those who are living in apartments, I mean, some, some complexes do have those agreements with pest control companies that will visit, like Molly mentioned, quarterly or every six months that, you know, you, you do have a choice in that uh, you can request to not have chemicals sprayed either around or for my complex, you know, they, they will do an indoor treatment. I opt out of all of that. I like Molly mentioned, practice IPM exclusion, you know, removing those conducive conditions. Um, so I'm not seeing any sort of pest. And I mean, as far as those treatments that are preventative, right? If you're not having a problem, then why would you want to use the additional uh, you know, pesticide. I think the people that I deal with, I mean, myself personally, I don't do perimeter sprays, but I really don't do a whole lot of control regardless. Um, I control fire ants and my whole neighborhood does the community-wide program, but 
as far as other treatment, I think structurally, uh, my husband will control cockroaches because he's not a fan. If I find cockroaches, I usually just grab them and throw them outside, which, which he doesn't know. Thankfully, he doesn't listen to this podcast, so he will not find out my secret. Um, but I think people that typically do a somewhat regular perimeter spray, in my experience from talking to people over the years, are people that live uh, more in the hill country in my area that have problems with scorpions and they're concerned about stepping on one when they're up in the middle of the night. Um, so they will do a perimeter treatment to get any of those scorpions that kind of try to move indoors. But we also recommend you, you could do the perimeter treatment. If you're going to do it, I would recommend a formulation of a wettable powder or a micro encapsulated. So it does not get sucked into the foundation, but you also need to cover vents with screening. You need to stuff weep holes with copper mesh or weep hole covers. You need to trim trees and shrubs away from the structure to kind of keep those scorpions away. So, you know, if you're having problems with that, definitely look up our podcast on exclusion and listen to that because that's going to give you a lot of preventative strategies that you can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I tend to be very proactive about a lot of things in my life, but um, insect treatment is not one of those. I'm very reactive. Um, and it sounds like a lot of you guys are too. We don't do prophylactic treatments of our home um, for insect pests that are not occurring, right? So we, we, I keep ant baits on hand and occasionally have to treat for ants trailing inside and of course fire ants in the yard, but that's about it. Um, we recently had an experience with carpet beetles and we managed that, um, but outside of that, we've we've never treated the exterior of our home, and um, we've never had much of an issue with insect incursion either. That's not to say that some folks live in areas where where they do experience those incursions of pest insects. We just don't. And in the case that they do, yeah, it might be wise to think about a prophylactic treatment. In other words, if there's a pest insect that shows up every year, um, but if not, I, I think it's generally unnecessary. And I do want to go back and touch on something that Molly said earlier. Our tolerance level for insects is probably way different than the average homeowner <laughs> because we're used to it. This is what we're exposed to. And so when Janet was talking earlier about thresholds and setting thresholds, that's really going to be dependent upon each individual. I mean, it's, and it could be based on, what type of arthropod you're dealing with. Some people may not be okay with cockroaches, but if they have a spider here or there, it's okay. Whereas other people are like, absolutely no spiders whatsoever. So it's going to really vary and you have to make that decision. And if you're going to do that control method yourself, then that's something that you need to keep in mind. If you are hiring a pest control company, that is something that you're going to need to communicate with them. Correct. Because again, I mean, for our audience, um, I'm like, full disclosure, I'm the oldest of our group. And for me, I remember growing up seeing baseboards being sprayed, but never understood it. And again, I came to the 
integrated pest management, the IPM world, very naturally because I'm just one of those people. But at the same time, a lot of us do get those questions about well, what do I do? I'm I'm from someplace else. And I'm here and I see all this activity. And, and in truth, folks, I mean, you're if you live in the South or where, no matter where you live, I mean, all insects need food, water, harborage to survive. And it's just a matter of what's going on because we throw in the outlier of temperature. And so, you know, crane flies have been flying around. Well, can I really spray them? No. What do I do inside my house? All right, if you can be Wizzy or Molly and try and capture them and set them free, or you can be me, I throw out a glue stick and it catches the flies and the crane flies because they are in, of in the same genus of families. Okay, you you said glue stick and I went like hot glue gun automatically. So you're no, talking no, no, about no. the fly strip. <laughs> <laughs> sorry listeners i meant they make these glues they're called gold gold sticks i believe that you can buy them at the store and it's their fly traps mm. i'm sorry i've used them for years only because i do have a neighbor that likes to 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 kill squirrels so i have random filth flies that i have to also try to keep out so to the audience am i using a chemical no am i using something a device to keep these flying pests out of my face yes because i do like my back porch hmm. that kind of leads to the discussion as well um and i'm sure everyone can add to this let's say if you're a homeowner and you have your favorite <clears throat> go-to pesticide that you're using so paying attention to those active ingredients and uh, what we refer to as the, the mode of action, right? So how is that pesticide affecting the uh, insect that you're targeting? Um, so there's different, you know, broad categories, whether or not it's disrupting, you know, the nervous system, the muscular system, uh, Janet mentioned some growth inhibitors, uh, respiration inhibitors? Uh, is it going to target something in the mid gut? All of these things can be alternated. Um, so let's say you're, you're spraying the same pesticide year round for five years and, you know, it's not working to control whatever it is you're trying uh, to, to get a handle on. And it, it might be because you're creating resistance without knowing it. And so paying attention to those active ingredients and alternating what we call the mode of action uh, can, can help you as well. So when we're talking about pesticide resistance, he's talking about changing the mode of action or how it kills. And usually you're going to do that switching up your chemical classes. The unfortunate part of that is many homeowners don't understand the difference between chemical classes. So that might be something that you need to contact your local extension agent to get that information the majority of the pesticides that are available to homeowners, if you go to the big box stores, are going to be in the same chemical class, which is a pyrethroid. And so that can make things somewhat difficult. So if you have questions on what chemical class your particular product is, please feel free to contact us. Yes, I will reiterate that 
again, because when, and this has to go again for our listeners, in Texas, because we have a law that mandates that the, the public schools abide by integrated pest management, and part of that has to do with understanding lower toxicity products, whenever I'm talking to anybody, those big jugs that say killer on them are equivalent to the old products that used to say killer on them. Be very careful when you buy something like that, because again, not only are we going to talk about resistance, but we would also talk about, you know, killing good bugs, bad bugs, and anything else in between. So that's why when we talk about, well, if you've got fire ants or carpenter ants or the little sweet feeding ants, there are baits. And generally when you're at the big box store, those products are generally not as easily defined as something that says killer. Whereas sometimes if it's a caterpillar or something, we were, Bryant was talking about the different ways that they work on them. Well, there are those natural products that Bacillus thuringigenis or the spinosads or the, the avermectins. Again, they're micro-based, but they only work on certain insects in certain sites because again, we're trying to go uh, at annihilating only the ones that we want to, not everything. And I hope that makes a little bit more sense to folks. Well, I would just, you know, I would, I would note that an additional challenge, um, you know, that comes along with uh, do-it-yourself work for controlling insect populations around your homes or, or uh, in commercial buildings, et cetera, is the fact that you're probably going to buy a lot more um, chemical than you need um, to solve your uh, current insect issue. So you'll probably be left with the question of what do I do with this additional material? And that can create an issue. Um, you know, pesticide storage long-term is, is not a good idea. Many of our baits break down and become rancid, in particular our granular baits. And then um, others are, are impacted um, just by sitting on the shelf in terms of their uh, effectiveness. And so I guess one of the one of the points that I always share with people when they call and they say, well, listen, I need to buy a product to solve this issue. What I tell them to do is try to determine how much of that product they'll need and then on, only buy enough for the, the job that they're uh, wishing to conduct with it, um, because um, storage can be tricky. And I just thought I'd mention that. But it will tell you how to store the product on the product label if you read it. This is correct. This is and correct. And maybe that's, we should, we should mention um, the, the, the label, the manufacturer's label on any insecticide is, is um, the best source of information um, in terms of what insect pests the product will work on, um, how to apply it properly and judiciously, um, how to store it, and also how to dispose of it. So it's vitally important um, those of you that are listening to this podcast, if you are attempting to select a, an insecticide for use on an insect pest um, that you would like to deal with, read the label. Read the label before you make a purchase. 
to decide on the product you want to use, read the label before you make an application. And then once you're done, read the label to figure out how to properly store whatever of that material is left or how to dispose of the container that it came in. In, uh, in summary, so just everything that we went over today on pesticide safety, when are pesticides necessary? Uh, what should be considered uh, when you're trying to implement a proper pesticide application? So you need to determine your action threshold thresholds um, identification of that pest species is important because that's going to determine anything from, from there for or moving forward. Uh, timing of applications, uh, you know, how often, at what time of the year, at what time of the day, um, you know, is it sunny outside? Is it rainy? Um, and all of that information too can be found on the label. Um, alternatives to broad spectrum insecticides. So you can actually buy targeted um, types of insecticides, whether that be baits. Um, something that is like Janet had mentioned, uh, the microbes with BT, um, alternating those active ingredients and modes of action for more information on that, like Wizzy mentioned, you can contact your extension office, uh, again, read the label, the labels, the law, uh, and then just different pros and cons of DIY pest control. Um, so I guess understanding that that cost, uh, associated with. DIY uh, applications, uh, understand what resistance is, uh, think about the non-target risks. So, um, you know, if you've got small kids or pets, you know, around your home, you don't want them to accidentally be exposed. Uh, and then we mentioned also uh, proper storage and, and handling of those pesticides. So a lot of those pesticides may come in some sort of concentrate do you really need one, two gallons of a pesticide that's going to sit there and uh, end up not being useful in the long run anyways? All right. So we hope that you enjoyed this podcast uh, and we will catch you next time.